everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Built in California series. This is season two. Looks completely different. It's a lot better. So, uh, you, But you know the deal. The deal is I connect you to some amazing founders from California, uh, although our current guest, Alex Bavin, the CEO and founder of Zero Systems, uh, is not from the US, as you're about to find out, but we're going to get into all of that. Uh, but Alex, uh, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Matt. Happy to be here. No, dude, like the privilege is all mine, man. Uh, you're doing some amazing things. I've obviously had a, a chance to get to know you and, you know, kind of poke the zero business with a bit of a stick. It didn't get bitten, so that's good news. Uh, but for our viewers around the world, Alex, who um, uh, don't know who you are and what you've been doing over there in, in the Valley, why don't you give us the elevator pitch, uh, kick us off. Uh, where does the story begin? Sounds good. Um, so Zero Systems is the company that builds cognitive automation for professional services, um, automating those really um, heavy lifting processes that requires mimicking decision-making process of a human being, typically those processes that no other automation technology can automate. So we're not uh, going after the easy target or uh, low-hanging fruit. We're taking on the uh, top of the market, very hard to automate processes, helping Fortune 500 companies to be more profitable, uh, more productive for people to spend less time on doing uh, repetitive tasks and so on and so forth. And we are doing it through the um, not just cognitive automation, but first labeling and classifying unstructured data, which is absolutely unsexy topic, but actually pretty big deal. <laughs> and we can dive into that uh, in more details, but that's what we do. So, um, so what's the problem? Like, what what is the issue? Is the issue here efficiency in manufacturing? Is the issue automating manual tasks? Uh, is it the cost of the you know the labor workforce doing manual things repetitively, endlessly? From your perspective, like, how would you categorize the problem that you're solving? Um, I would start with the top level. Actually, um, the problem is time. Time is the limited resource. Um, and uh, we basically, a time company, we give people back the most important thing anyone can have, they time. Uh, and time is a limited commodity for everyone. You and I have the same 24, uh, 24 hours a day as, for example, I know Warren Buffett does. And no money in the world can give you an extra hour, right? So, um, and in this case, that's the foundation on on which everything is based time is a limited commodity and professionals spending enormous amount of time on not just repetitive processes some of those processes can be automated um, and removed from your to-do list uh, by other technologies but the problem is that some of the processes are very unique to you as a professional, like Matt, you're doing your emails and documents and your to-do lists and all that stuff differently uh, from how I do that. And if those processes are different for each uh, person, it's really hard to automate it with the traditional techniques. It should be adaptive technology, the, the technology that will mimic the way you work. And that's where the, um, the problem is because, well, one feet all typically feet none. And in this case, adaptive technology that can mimic the way you work will solve your problem. Otherwise, it will not. So that's the hardest part, which we're cracking. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'd love for you to unpack uh, for our audience, Alex, is this idea of comparison, the comparison of augmentation versus replacement, because um, it seems to me like in this space, there is a view that's not mainly i would say the prevailing view but certainly it is one that is current where like you know this is actually going to replace mm. uh, rather than augment which is kind of what you're saying right it's about looking at the, the role of the human in this whole process not just the role of technology mm -hmm. yes that's that's a very common concept uh, and there are two two approaches two schools one is AI replacing people doing some work, and it's inevitable. Some of the work is going to be replaced. Um, but uh, there's also an augmentation school where uh, people say, well, replacement is happening with some of the processes, which machines are definitely better than humans with. 
but also augmentation happens. So people are definitely better at some other areas. And um, why not Why not to make machine help people to be better, faster, uh, more productive while remaining, keeping them um, the core of the process, the cognitive component, the um, the creative uh, piece of it? Because machine will never be this, as, as creative as a human. Uh, yes, people can argue with those old DALIs and other technologies that they can mimic painters and create videos still it's very rudimentary the thought process is absolutely different for a machine and a human so in this case we believe in augmenting people's abilities rather than replacing them and keeping people um, and professionals in the loop in the center and in control of everything instead of kind of telling them hey you're obsolete we don't need you here anymore that's not the way we work but Alex, how do you know what to replace versus what to augment? Like whose whose decision is that? Is that uh, is that a human decision or is that a AI slash ML decision? How does one reconcile, you know, what to augment versus what to replace? I think it's a uh, it's a common decision. Like, well, definitely it's it's a piece of a software that uh, uh, provides people with uh, ability to not do some some routine tasks. I'll give you an example. Uh, in one of our products, which is a compliance automation, when things are being taken from one place and put into, let's say, document management system or content management system. And right now, people are doing it manually, like lawyers, accountants, all those regulated industries like pharmaceuticals. When you need to preserve the content, uh, which is related to client matter or project, people are not good at kind of a, those routine tasks by uh, labeling the content and putting into a, a specific repository. Machine is much better with this, though we want people to be in control. And at, at, at the end, um, there is a way for a human to control what machine is doing for her. And if some some uh, professionals don't want to even touch it with a six-foot pole saying, well, there's machine working for me, let it do uh, its job, that's fine. But some people might be like, uh, I don't trust machine 100%. Let the machine do the work. I'll check it later. So that's another concept. So it gives people flexibility to work the way they feel comfortable. The same example with autopilot. Some people would trust autopilot, push the button, open up the uh, the book and read it while driving, which is not a good idea, I think, at this a a stage. But some people would be like, nah, I'm not touching this autopilot thing until it's like uh, 20 years old technology, right? And super polished. It's a different approach. It's individual, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, you've developed a number of solutions, Zero Athena, Zero Apollo, and Zero Hercules. Um, And I'm going to bring this up for for everyone. So Zero Hercules, um, this is, I really want to like spend some time here because one of the things you shared with me was that, you know, if you're going to start solving this kind of problem, you have to really think about like the different types of data structured and unstructured. And it starts with really understanding most of the time, this idea of like unstructured data. Um, So so if you could, Alex, what is Zero Hercules? How does it work with unstructured data and structured data, for instance? Um, and how does it all come together in a solution that solves this problem that we've just unpacked for everyone? That's a good question. So to answer what Hercules is and what it does, we need to actually take a step back into what um, what's happening right now uh, on the market, not just on the market, like in, in the industry. So as Humanity, as a corporate, like let's look at the corporate market, we accumulated enormous amount of unstructured data. And unstructured data, I'll explain what it is. Unstructured data is the data where you don't know where it belongs. It might be a document sitting on your computer. It might be email sitting in your inbox. might be image that sitting is somewhere in a shared drive. All those things that you don't know where it belongs until you open it up and you actually read the content. That's how we human in our brains, we classify and label information. We open it up. If I just show you the icon that says one, two, three dot uh, doc, you will not be able to tell me where it belongs. But if you open it up and you read it, you'll say, oh, that's the client A matter B, right? Or project C. So that's that's kind of a, uh, what unstructured data is. 
we accumulated enormous amount of data. Actually, I want to throw a number at you guys, but it's pretty uh, astonishing. It's about 60 zettabytes right now of unstructured data that's been accumulated by by corporate world. When I first heard of Zettabyte, I thought it's a, it's a name of a villain from a comics book, right? <laughs> but actually, it's a number. It's 1 billion gigabytes. Like, sure. how big is that? It's enormous. And uh, that's actually 80% of all the data. It's unstructured. So you can't do anything with it. But this data is really important for any organization in the world not just from the productivity point of view, but also business analytics, automation, all that stuff. And what we've built, and we, we started with, we built Hercules, which, coming back to your question, Hercules is the engine that can process that unstructured data in a systematic approach. It's basically always on. It just works. Uh, right now, organizations, they are attacking this problem by basically either using some combination of technology and a sweatshop where people labeling this data or just pure sweatshops where people just doing that all day long. We turn it into upside down and into the automatic mode. You turn on Hercules inside your security perimeter as an organization, your data starts being classified and labeled, and then you can apply automation on top of it. For example, if you know where the document belongs, what client and project it belongs to, you can, automation module can take that document now and safely place it in a specific location where another automation module can pick it up and process it. For example, extract um, a due date from uh, an invoice or uh, extract the amount from a contract and so on and so forth. So that's kind of a chain uh, reaction of things that can happen once the data is classified. And I was saying it's very unsexy because like literally no one wants to talk about the data. Uh, but importantly, data is the new oil. And organizations are sitting on those huge data swamps that they accumulated and adding layers on top of it every day, more and more to those data swamps. And uh, they can, can't turn it into some useful things. They can't extract value out of it. They cannot turn it into electricity, basically, to power up the business applications, business analytics, and so on and so forth. So it's a steam power age we're in right now because we can't make uh, take value out of that crude data oil thing that they're sitting on top. And that's what Hercules is designed for, to process that crude data and turn it in a, into electricity. Mm -hmm. So there's all this data, just to repeat back. So there's all this data out there. A lot of it's unstructured. Businesses don't, they don't need data. They've got many cases, I suppose, in your case also. Like, I mean, I'm going to ask you now who you're, who's this actually for? <laughs> because like the Matt Brown show has got a lot of data, but not as much as like a Fortune 100, you know, company as an example. But what I'm hearing is, Alex, is that there's all this data and companies are sitting on this and they, they don't know how to unlock equity or value from within this data because a lot of it's unstructured. They just don't know what to do with it. You come along with, uh, with Hercules uh, and you're able to effectively make sense of this unstructured data and, and make it and, and really transform it from being a, essentially a sunk cost around data management and infrastructure and turn that into a strategic enabler of business value. Yes, that's that's exactly what it is. So who is your customer then? I mean, is this is this for a small business or is this for like an enterprise? Is it everybody in between? Uh, well, we focus on the top of a market. Those are primarily Fortune 1,500 companies. Uh, we Right now, we focus on three markets, like segments. Our initial beachhead market is legal, large law firms, and actually the largest law firms in the world. Uh, because the sensitivity of the data those organizations possess, it's next level. Uh, and uh, automation they need to apply to is really, really important for them. So uh, legal, uh, management consulting, and uh, financial services. Basically, all those three uh, sub-markets can be identified as a professional services. Mm. That's That's our target market. Yeah, and lawyers, law firms tend to print a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, uh, not, not anymore, but they generate enormous amount of data. Mm -hmm. Those organizations, they actually, they live and breathe uh, with data. And the way uh, the, the 
the level of uh, efficiency they can process the data with and operate with the data with uh, basically defines how competitive they are. That's why it's so important for this type of organizations. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So Alex, what does what does the ROI look like for a company? I mean, if if you're able to make sense of the data where and transform it into a strategic driver of value, as we touched on, like what kind of ROI can a business like a law firm generate? Let's let's use two examples: a law firm and a management consulting firm. Uh, both clients of ours. And they, uh, one of them just published the, uh, the um, case study with real ROI numbers. So a law firm has been using zero for um, for about a year, and uh, they're using Apollo and Athena, two products of ours. One is compliance automation, which saves time for people not doing tasks that they not designed like uh, that they don't want to do. Uh, for example, filing emails and documents into document management system. Um, and another product, Apollo, is capturing time, making sure every uh, billable hour is captured, identified, described, basically working as your personal assistant. So those two products define uh, the effectiveness for that for that client, and uh, they realized about two thousand over actually over two thousand percent ROI, one point six million of new revenue realized for a subset of hundred fifty attorneys. Uh, during a year, so that's and not just counting the uh, countless hours saved. So people can all. It's really hard to um, to know what people spend they time the, the save time on. They might went to a baseball game to see their son playing or do some work. So save time is extra bonus. What we count for ROI is the new revenue unlocked, and it's really important. That client actually called it ROI on the first day. Because like at the end of the first day when the product was launched, it's already started producing enough ROI to justify everything. Mm. So um, that's one example. Another example is a Fortune 500 company, client of ours. They have about 80 FTEs, full-time employees, processing uh, capital calls. Capital call is the basically glorified invoice when the one fund sends it to the limited partner saying, hey, now you need to transfer money. Uh, because we're making an investment, um, and they are managing funds for uh, for large organizations. And in this case, eighty people, all they do all day long is taking this invoices and capital calls, extracting data from inside, and putting it into internal system. With our products, they don't have to do that. And those are highly trained financial analysts like why would they do that uh, repetitive uh, work instead of doing some meaningful stuff so in this case it's about 10 million dollars saved a year and ROI is over 5000% here because well the software can process enormous amount of uh, information and all they need is a couple of people to double check it later instead of 80 people they need to just two to do the kind of a uh, supervision instead of doing it uh, manually all the time. So, um, and with automation, it's uh, basically different ROI for different processes. Some processes might be very expensive. Some processes might be less expensive, but still very important. It's really hard to calculate average ROI, but overall it's hundreds and thousands of uh, percents uh, instead of just small incremental changes. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really awesome. I just wanted to maybe touch on something here around integration because um, uh, up on your site chat it says, you know, automating key business processes begins with teaming up with the right integration partners. Why is that the case? Because you know, I keep hearing about automation, automation. It seems like if you're in the AI space, like it, it is all about, you know, reducing manual tasks, creating strategic or sense out of data to create strategic value and things like this. But from an integration perspective, it may not be, it's not really obvious, you know, that you've got to have great integration partners. So I'm curious for you to unpack that for our audience around the world, Alex. Like why does this integration, you know, ecosystem type, type point matter so much in this context? It's actually one of the most important components, uh, which... Um sometimes being overlooked. Um, And in order to answer that question, let's start with comparing software and automation. Well, of course, automation is also um, consists of software, but two concepts are very different. So software is something um, that you set up that produces the, the, the results, the work, and provides you with the workflows and so on and so forth. Automation is typically something that sits on top of your software, not replacing it but augmenting it. That's the concept that we discussed uh, previously, right? Not replacing, not making you change the way you work, but augmenting it. And in order to augment it correctly, it needs to be connected to that software that you're using uh, right now. So, uh, because it's a part of it, it's not replacing it. So for example, if you have a time and billing system, let's say you're an accounting firm, you have a time and billing system and it's been there for 15 years, yes, sometimes those organizations run on the software that's 20 years old and 15 years old. It's like everywhere. It's uh, connected to everything. Re- to replace it's literally impossible if you want to replace it with another piece of software. But if you come in with automation, you need to set it up on top of it, making sure that this new, this old software works like new with all those techniques you can provide. That means you need to connect it through either API or uh, some SDK or whatever, like import expert solutions to that software. Like again, it sounds weird, but that's the way uh, automation works. And for the end user, it looks like magic. It basically takes your old Honda Civic of 1999 and turns it into brand new Tesla. <laughs> Though it will still smell like Honda Civic because it's still old. <laughs> But it will drive like Tesla and sometimes users are like, oh my God, it's like something new. No, nothing new. It's just automation being applied on top of it. <laughs> you heard that here first. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I find that hilarious. <laughs> As a Tesla that smells like an old Honda Civic. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So look, um, Alex, what you've done seems to be pretty hard. I know you guys went through like a three-year build cycle. From a technology perspective, like I spoke to uh, Nathan uh, Stevenson, he's the founder and CEO of Ford Lane in New York, also AI and well, he was like, dude, like I asked him about like advice and, you know, about uh, to founders around working with AI and things, which is where I want to go with you now. Um, and he was like, don't do AI, you know, and we were talking because he was like, it's such a, it's a bull egg. Like it's really, really hard to do. It's very expensive. Um, and, 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 and you guys went to, uh, through a three-year build cycle, as I touched on just now. So um, what would you say, what is your advice actually to a founder who's thinking about creating an unfair advantage with technology? He's got his eye on things like AI or ML or computer vision or whatever the case might be. Um, and maybe you, if you could, could you borrow an insight from what you've learned about building this capability yourself? Like what would you, what is your advice to a founder? Should they do it? Should they not do it? What have you learned about it? Um, you know, unpack some of those points for us. A lot of questions packed into one. Um, yeah. I would say there is like whoever will give you an advice, don't do it or do it. They both right. It depends on how you wanted to address it, right? If like old saying, if you think you will not be able to win, you're right. So in this case, it's just because you didn't try. Um, so I would say AI is hard, um, but AI as a concept is uh, something that uh, actually people think it's it's hard, too hard to build, but actually there is a nice path into those kind of things. And AI is built on data. That's a key component. 
first you need to understand what problem you want to uh, to, to solve. And uh, building AI for the sake of building AI, it's useless. Well, there are some companies that just generically build models like OpenAI, for example. They're doing great job and they're providing the industry with absolutely next level technologies. Now, other companies, startups can use and leverage those technologies not to build everything from scratch, but build on top of it. Right. So recently they they uh, released a new um, voice to text recognition model, which is absolutely next level and it's publicly available. It's free. You can use it and build your own company on top of it. But to build a company on top of it, you need to understand first what problem you were going to solve. Uh, if it's just an AI that makes nice uh, cat pictures uh, dancing on, uh, on Roomba vacuum cleaners, well, it's not a good idea to start with. It might be a very nice looking thing, but not a good idea because it doesn't solve a problem. It's just a very obvious thing. Start with a problem. But a lot of people being dragged into this AI thing and frenzy, uh, they forget about it. So like, oh, we'll build, build some machine learning and AI, uh, and they forget why they're building it. So we started differently. We looked at what is left untouched. What is What was so hard to attack that no one actually dared? <laughs> I call it was too stupid and not brave enough, uh, like not, not stupid and brave enough to actually even try. Uh, and we realized that uh, there is a layer of uh, processes, the top layer of processes that no one actually dared to touch with a six-feet pole because it's really, really hard to automate. And that's what we started with, those cognitive processes that work differently for each individual. And uh, we decided that we'll need to attack that particular thing. I'm a big believer in um, a zero to one concept, which was beautifully described by Peter Thiel in his zero to one book, which you need to aim to become a monopoly in a good way, but monopoly to do things that no one else is doing. So you don't have to rub shoulders with anyone and basically focus on making the product better instead of competing with some other players on the market. And that's how we ended up being inside legal because selling to law firms is notoriously known to be really, really hard. And no one actually dared to do that. People were like, selling to law firms? No, no way. It's so hard. And yes, it is hard, but it's a walled garden. Once you're inside, it opens up so, so much opportunity for you. Uh, and it's really hard. It's like um, Paul Graham was saying, start things uh, start with things that are not scalable because that will harden you it will battle harden you it will help you create the product and uh, a lot of companies i see right now they start they try to find the low hanging fruit but if there is a low hanging fruit easy to pick there're probably 50 other companies aiming for the same fruit and you have to fight with them for that fruit if you go around and try to find something that is really hard to pick, no one else is willing to do, and you walk your way, work your way through those obstacles, you become a monopoly by design that you can now reinforce your products and uh, be better at it. Mm -hmm. Alex, um, I'm very curious to um, maybe talk about strategic partnerships here, because even if you've built a great product, which you guys have, like there is also like the go-to-market piece here. Um, and I know that you are working with the likes of Gartner and Forrester to basically, you know, unlock the enterprise segment. Um, I'm curious, what is the role of a strategic partnership for a startup such as Zero, who solved a hard science problem, who gets ROI like 2000% for an enterprise customer? In that context, what is the, um, or how important is the strategic partnership value driver for you guys as a startup? Absolutely crucial and very, very important. So uh, there are two elements that any startup Sorry, you go ahead. So there are two uh, elements every uh, startup has to unlock. And um, a lot of companies focus on one, product market fit. But they forget, especially enterprise, uh, <clears throat> enterprise companies, they forget about the second component, go to market fit. It's not just important to find the market and the product and help your clients to unlock, um, unlock the ROI. 
It's also how you scale it to dominate the market. And that's where partners come in. Because no one can help you to unlock the product market fit. You have to do it on your own. But partners, especially if we're talking about enterprise market, partners can help you unlock the go-to-market fit, how to distribute the product faster and cheaper. Because uh, it's not enough just to sell products. You need to sell prof uh, products uh, that are scalable, that are profitable, and uh, you don't have to grow your headcount in order to support that growth uh, that dramatically. So in this case, uh, distribution partners, and we signed uh, some of the largest organizations in the world as our distribution partners. Uh, embeddable partners, when you potentially can, and those are varieties of those, when you can take your technology and put it somewhere as white label or branded by and uh, powered by or so on, so on and so forth, to actually make that penetration faster and better. Or management consulting partners who actually do those projects for your clients. So they can take your technology, someone else's technology, combine it into something as a, on a project base and then deliver it to a client. That's where scalability is being unlocked. Otherwise, you're going, you have a risk of staying a small niche player without going horizontal uh, play at some point. That's what every um, enterprise company should be aiming for. Start vertically with a beachhead market. It's really, really, really important to win a beachhead and then go another beachhead, another beachhead. But then at some point, with the help of partners, go horizontally. Uh, to actually achieve this uh, go-to-market fit at some point. So I haven't heard of that idea before, go-to-market fit, but I, by the way, I absolutely love it. <laughs> so there is a great book. Actually, I would suggest the book to the audience. Um, Bob Tinker, amazing guy. Mm -hmm. uh, you should interview him. He's absolutely amazing. He was the CEO of uh, Mobile Iron, one of the best uh, uh, MDM companies out there. They went public, um, sold it. He wrote a book called uh, Survival to Thrival. And he describes this concept, the go-to-market feed, uh, beautifully. And it's very, basically, it's basically a to-do list for any enterprise software company to go through. Amazing book, really kind of concise, to the point, absolutely next level of importance for enterprise software companies. Hmm. Go to market fit. I love that. I've got it up on screen for everybody. Uh, survival to thrival. So I'm curious. Um, how do you know when you're there? Like, how do you know when you when you've arrived at go to market fit? It's uh, it's really hard to explain. You need to feel it. It's basically like you feel someone is kind of grabbing you by the nose and dragging you in. You can't resist, right? It's the feeling when basically one client introduces you to another client without you asking for the introduction. And that happens regularly. It's not just one or twice. It happens when people uh, in the industry talking about your company and your product saying, hey, these guys are doing a great job. So it's really connected to another really important term for enterprise software companies, referenceability. And of mm -hmm. course, there's there's a great book by Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm, that describes that uh, beautifully. Um, but basically, you have to feel it. When one client tells another client that you have to do that with these guys because they product, they solution, they approach is absolutely next level. That's where you feel like uh, the product market fit has been achieved. Mm. One of the things uh, is just reading in the synopsis here, let me bring it up again, um, which I'm curious to get your view on. He says, yeah, common wisdom on product market fit is not good enough to unlock growth. Um, curious about uh, what your views are on that, uh, Alex. What would you say is a prevailing idea about product market fit? Um, That's exactly what I said. Like product market fits alone, fit alone is not enough. Mm. Product market fit plus, plus go-to-market fit, the distribution channel, the way you sell. Those two components, the two legs, you can run marathon on. If you have just one leg, the uh, product market fit, it's still nice, but that will not uh, make you a great company. You have to have both components in play. Uh, what you're selling to the clients and they are willing to buy and how you sell it. If you have both components, sky is the limit then.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some sometimes we think, uh, or my point of view is like some people, we think we have product market fit, but we're not there yet. Like we haven't figured out, like if I put a dollar here, I get $3 out. Like we don't quite fully understand the, the unit economics of the business itself. Um, and I love what you said um, about you just, you, it's like a sense that you get. Um, and I, I know that to be true. So like I know what it feels like when you don't have it. You know what I mean? Like just the feedback and like the the conversation you're having with customers and your team. It's like a certain type of conversation. So you know intuitively like it's not the right. And then when you find it, then you compare that conversation with your team, with your customers, even with your investors. And then it's like it's like I've just found that now with this fractional chief media officer story just for the Matt Brown show. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that too like for for like two months it sucked it was horrible like I was having like this super like when I first met you I was going through this process um, and now it's like it's different you just it's a thing that you get like things just start to build momentum and they start to work and then suddenly it's like oh snap like we're there and I had that before um, in my previous company when we were doing um, uh, we were basically doing a media company that generated sales qualified leads and we were we were we started doing MQLs or just top of funnel leads and then uh sending them to the clients and the client was like no 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 these these leads suck and then we were like well what what's missing and so we introduced an outbound team that would then vet the leads based on pre-agreed criteria with the clients and then the moment we did that then it was game over because now we had like the best solution or product go to market fit actually uh, mm-hmm. for for that client and then and then because we had we we chose to be for a beachhead of customers which was for distribution companies of technology products then it was like game over and we didn't even, like cost of acquisition fell through the floor revenues doubled every year and that's what I mean when when this the sense that you get and I agree with you here is like it's it's just that's when you know like you're there. You're right. You're right. And that's that's exactly what it is. So I've seen a lot of um, people struggling to find product for market fit, but actually they found product market fit. They just didn't realize they did. And what they lacked is a go-to-market fit. And when I was talking to them, like, what's going on? It's like, oh, it's so hard to sell. Well, you're selling. Your clients are buying. That means you have a product market fit. Even a, even a blind squirrel can find a nut once in a blue moon, right? So you found that nut. You're, you're not a blind squirrel anymore. You found the, uh, the nut, but you didn't figure out how to scale, sell scalably. That's what you didn't find. And it's not a product market fit. Don't confuse two things. And at that point, I really like the concept of Kabayashi Maru when you, there is, there is no winning situation if you can't sell scalably. So ban the rules, find the other way to sell. And that's where this partnerships, uh, distribution channels, uh, anything else can, can help you. But you need to keep looking for it because sometimes companies make another mistake. They, they know that they found product market fit and they start digging deeper. And like, uh, remember this old joke when um, uh, Homer Simpson was asked, how are we going to get out of this hole? He'll, he said, we'll just dig ourselves out of it. So some people are trying to dig harder, thinking they will dig themselves out of the uh, hole in the ground instead of getting deeper. So instead of kind of a digging deeper, when you have product market fit, but you still don't have, yet don't have the go to market fit, you need to walk around and try to see the new distribution channel. Hmm. It's actually easier than to find the product market fit, but people sometimes overlook that. Hmm. Great point. Great, great point. So um, you're obviously a visionary, um, and I'd love to ask you a question around this. Like, what is the? I mean, you could go anywhere, right? I know you've, you're doing legal and professional services as, as a kind of a beachhead initially, but you could go anywhere. Like in the future, and there's the, the you're swimming in this. I would say land of opportunity or maybe another way to rephrase that is like you have these champagne problems um so uh, what is your vision like i mean what kind of difference do you hope to make in the world as a as a founder ceo visionary he's built this solved this hard science problem for the world what is the hope in terms of the ultimate difference that you want to make um that's a great question it's a tough one um also um because 
more visionary you are, less predictive the, the results are. Like literally, you have to go with a small steps, but keep this big uh, picture in, uh, in your head. Uh, and that's actually what we started with. What we see is that enormous amount of data being accumulated by humankind, and that data is unstructured. So it's, again, it's a data swamp. And not just data swamp. This data swamp is full of alligators, virtual, of course. Uh, so if you don't know where the data is, how to process it, we're going to be leaving like uh, our our eyes deep into into that um, swamp. And uh, we, as a company, believe that we can, through those small steps and working with these markets and building the technology in Hercules in the first place that we already did, we can be that layer on top of existing software that will take that crude data, that's oil of a swamp uh, that co corporations are sitting on top of and produce electricity uh, to power up virtual electricity, to power up those business applications, helping people be more productive. That's why we call it zero because it's zero time wasted. And it's really important. And zero as, uh, as a name, as a, um, as a number, was really significant point in a humankind history. Zero is the first number that unlocked the creative thinking. I'll explain why. It unlocked the abstract thinking. So in prehistoric era, if you if you went to a uh, to market to buy fish, you went to buy two fishes, five fishes. No one went to buy zero fishes or minus two fishes or some other <laughs> formula, right? So when humanity came up with a zero as a number, they came up with abstract thinking. We as zero, as a company, zero systems, we want to bring this new system of operating with the data. And I, I want to I highlight it with a story. Um, in 1895, in London, like over 130 years ago, in London, there was an article published called Big Problem of horse manure of uh, 19, uh, 1950. So scientists uh, and uh, journalists, they realized that the amount of transportation London needed in the next 50 years, and because all the transportation was uh, based on horsepower, the number of horses would increase so dramatically in the next 50 years that the, lo the Londoners, like the London streets would be filled with horse manure up to nine feet uh, in height. So that they called it horse manure problem of uh, 1950. And they were really thinking of how to solve the problem. Little did they know that in 15 years, cars would replace uh, horses and the problem would disappear. So right now, and it became a joke, but right now we are, as a corporate world, we're in this horse manure problem of data. And there would be a car appear that will completely eliminate that problem because it will turn it around. And we hope that zero systems would be that layer that will help to solve the problem. That's our big vision. Very interesting, mate. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm going to play, have a bit of fun with you now, Alex. So I'm going to give you the keys to the uh, Matt Brown show time machine. And I'd love for you to go back to like day one, which is some time ago now. Um, and I'm curious to get your view on like, what, what advice would you give yourself on day one? If you could go back in time and say, Hey, Alex, here's my advice uh, to you about building uh, zero. What would that uh, advice be? Hmm. Uh, well, advice is just one. Well, I would not do anything differently. I would just, uh, spend less time and uh, be less focusing on things that now hindsight 2020 looks like they were not worth it. So one of the key advices would be keep going, always keep going. Like Winston Churchill was saying, if you're going through hell, just keep going. And uh, I also have been spending a lot of time trying to find mentors and advisors and anyone who can navigate, help me navigate. It's important. But I over overestimated the importance of it. Of course, there were a couple of people who actually helped us navigate the company the right way. But mostly, 
I realized that the best teachers for a CEO are stress, deadline, force majeure, and deficit. Those are the best teachers. <laughs> Not anyone else. <laughs> I'm going to tweet that shit. <laughs> so, uh, Alex, um, question uh, from my side. What would you miss if you were not doing what you do? Like if it all came to an end? And, and I'm asking that question because uh, because as of that quote from Winston Churchill, like if you're going through hell, keep going. I think a lot of people don't, they quit. Like they're like, yo, you know, it's not worth it. Um, and I think, you know, I spoke to this other founder recently and he was like, you know, I have more bad days than good days. Like who chooses that? And you're, in other words, like you have, you have a, you're a particular type of person, uh -huh, um, that, that, you know, chooses that. So what would you miss if you were it, not? Entrepreneurship is living a few years of your life. Like most people want, so you can spend the rest of your life. Like most people can't. So to me, it's all about this. I, myself and my team, we keep walking. We never give up so we can achieve something that no one else can achieve. And that's the moving target. And that's something that you realize. Your goals, your desires, your way of thinking, hey, we want this and we want that. And you achieve it and the target has moved. It's like a horizon. You always chase a horizon. You can't reach it. Mm. You have to be a specific uh, mindset to actually be absolutely nuts to do that. But also getting so much uh, joy and um, feeling so committed to it that it gives you the purpose in life. And I know it sounds like uh, too um, vague. But actually, that's what's driving startups, this never-ending chase of the horizon. That's why startups, when they get to the scale and they sell and they go IPO and so on and so forth, we see founders start another startup. They start another thing because that's the drug. They add, like, you know, this adrenaline uh, junkies, that's a different uh, type of uh, kind of a, mm, addiction. You have to build things. You have to see things change and being born and evolve and produce value that's our drug where we're, we're using the value that we provide and seeing people using it and lives being changed by by something that you've built your and your team has built so it's absolutely different mindset and uh, you just can't stop yeah i put a youtube video out on that uh, it was called the imaginary finish line to, mm -hmm. echo, to echo what you said because it's like when when do you like retirement doesn't like it's such a dated concept like it doesn't exist in the mindset of of like a, a visionary founder you know or an entrepreneur it's just like doesn't happen you will always start the next thing i think to your point though a lot of people don't think about what happens after they sell um and i interviewed uh bo burlingham who literally wrote the book finish big and he interviewed like 300 entrepreneurs who had sold they had all the money in the world all the time in the world and like a like a you'd be surprised but if like a ridiculously high number of uh, founders go into depression after they sell their business despite the fact that they have the sports cars the houses and the money and to your money that's that's the key we don't do that for the money there's mm. not that much money you need to actually feel happy it's about this adrenaline and this um feeling of having having an impact that we're mm. doing it for at some point money actually stopped becoming the the main the main driver mm-hmm yeah, it is about literally about meaning and purpose. And we as humans, my sense is that we get a lot of meaning and purpose from suffering. You know, <laughs> we do. Like, that's the thing. I mean, Viktor Frankl wrote the book on it. Like, oh, when he I, was, I love it. Uh, the, yeah. uh, um, the Man in the Search of uh, Purpose. Yes, yes. Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. I mean, it's a crazy book, right? And you don't think, you don't connect the dot. Like, you go, ah, why am I suffering? And it's like, well, because, bro, like, <laughs> if you don't suffer, nothing is worth it. <laughs> you know? If you've been giving something like it is, like, that's why a lot of people who win lottery, like, most of them, they end up pretty badly because mm. they got it 
for with no suffering. It's just like a win. We are suffering. We are going through hell deliberately. That's our choice to actually make an impact. That's why we value the results that we get because they are blood and tears and sweat and all that stuff. And nobody cares about your story until you win. So fucking win. Mm -hmm. Damn, great answer. Um, listen, let's wrap this up, Alex. I uh, always ask my, my founders this. Um, why do you do what you do? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? I think that's, we just covered that. Yeah, I think so. We just met. We but say it, give me, give, give the world a sound bite. <laughs> that's what win. I want to win for myself, for my team, for my customers, for my family, for everyone. Because that's not a zero sum game here. If I win, no one else loses. It's not the, the, the other type of games here. If I win, everyone wins. If my team wins, everyone wins. And that gives us the purpose. We want to win because we know that we're solving such a big problem. No one ever dared to solve. We have a chance to do it and be the first in the world to do it. And if we do it, we win. That's why we keep going. Amazing. Thanks, Alex, for being on the show. It's been great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers, everyone. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.